Hey guys, I'm Dan Cooper, the youth pastor here at Jubilee and wanted to welcome you to Jubilee Online. We're currently in a series called At The Movies in which our teaching team takes movies and puts a biblical spin on it. It's really awesome and super fun and hope you guys can join us. And if you are wanting to get involved and get connected, there are three ways you can give. Through our website at jfc.org give, through our mobile app, or through text to give. I hope you guys have a great weekend and an amazing summer. Yep, so that's what they said. So I'll just come back after I get done with this walk and I'll just head back. All right. Excuse me! Hang on one second. I love this church. I love the people in this church. That video, I don't know about though. How do you follow that? I like, I don't know. I guess uh, should we pray? Should we pray? Is that a good transition? Let's let's pray. God, uh, thank you for for your church. Um, Thank you that we have the freedom to gather here, that we can laugh together, we can have fun together, we can eat a dozen donuts together. Um, Thank you for your presence, God. Thank you for what you're doing in individuals and in families in this church, God. Thank you for our kids that are away at kids camp right now, God, that that you're doing something, you're planting seeds that will last all eternity, God. We thank you for your presence here that you're going to teach, you're going to open our eyes, God, and you're going to impart something deep into us. Do this, Holy Spirit. This is your time. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. How many of you guys are into comics at all? Not that many. Okay. All right. Uh, This is interesting because we're we're in a series called At the Movies, and um, so you guys are moviegoers, right, at least? Okay. All right. I'm in the right place. Okay. Uh, We've been doing the series At the Movies, and we've been breaking down theological ideas and and, um, maybe inspirational thoughts and tied to biblical stories that that are connected to modern day contemporary movies that me and you watch. And I get the pleasure today to talk about the movie uh, Infinity Wars, Avengers. Any, anyone seen Avengers, Infinity Wars? Yes. I'm going to go ahead and tell you already, I'm going to spoil the ending for you. So I'm sorry, but not sorry. Uh, it's been out for a year. So, all right. So if you have, if you're like, I know I'm going to meet someone after service, they're going to be like, we were going to rent that today. We were going to, so... I hate to, hate to spoil it for you, but guess what? Luke's father is Darth Vader, too. So there you go. We're just going to take care of it all. Well, we're, we're talking about this movie. If you saw it, it came out last year. For those that don't know, um, I grew up kind of a comic nerd, not, not like some people that I know, but I loved comics. I loved reading comics. Um, there was a comic you'd get every once in a while. Maybe some of you have seen this or not, but it was a thicker comic and it was a comic statistic book. Anyone remember these things at all? And you, you would open it up and it have all the characters, the, the heroes and the villains. You know what I'm talking about. All the heroes and the villains. And next to their picture, it would list like their stats, their birth, you know, town, their hometown, their, you know, weaknesses, all of that. And man, I geeked out on these things. Like I love flipping through these statistic books. 
because, you know, I'm analytical that way, strategic. So, you know, I, I'm looking at, you know, whatever, yeah, Iron Man and looking at all his stats. And, and then I'm comparing him to, you know, his arch nemesis or something and going, okay, like, they're, they're pretty equal there. And I just loved doing that, um, breaking that down. And in this movie, Avengers, it, this was one of the most hyped up movies of last summer that, that we all you know, if you didn't go see it, you heard about it, right? It was huge. And it was part one to a part two whole series that we just, you know, got to watch, what, a month ago now? Um, and got to see the ending of this. So a two-year span of one movie, and we're left with this epic, everyone walked into the theater with this excitement of like, what's gonna happen? I mean, 10 years of comic book movies have been building up to this movie, Infinity Wars. And uh, when you lay out the statistics, okay, of Thanos, the, the, the villain, our antagonist in the story, and all of the Avengers, it's pretty clear who wins. In fact, look at this, this is my stats right here. Thanos is the bad guy that we, see in Infinity Wars, and you see his stats, they're 6'7", not a decent 985 pounds, you know, tipping the scale there, he had a, a good uh, summer, right? Uh, he's bald, you can't win them all, right? But, but, you know, look at his powers though, superhuman strength, superhuman durability, magic, and immortality. That's not bad, right? That's not a bad tool belt to have of effective weapons and abilities to do it. Now, I want to show you in comparison the, just the powers of all of the superheroes that we call the Avengers in the Avengers. And take a look at this. Look at this. Superhuman strength, superhuman durability, superhuman speed, superhuman reflexes, control of elements, hand-to-hand combat, sword fighting, heightened sentences, genius intelligence. That's a pretty decent list too, isn't it? I'd take one of those on any given day, right? And, and here's the deal. If, if, you, if you look at the stats, before walking into the narrative, before walking into the story um, of Thanos of, you know, versus the Avengers in Infinity War, you would say the Avengers are stacked. I mean, in comparison to abilities, they have way more. They should easily take care of Thanos, now, the problem is, is Thanos has, um, this is so funny talking about this on stage here, because I'm just like, I'm talking about a comic book, you know? Anyways, Thanos has this glove. You remember the glove? What do they call it? The, what? Infinity Gauntlet. He looks at me like, you don't know the Infinity Gauntlet? Yes, the Infinity Gauntlet, okay? Now, without boring you guys, here's the deal with the Infinity Gauntlet, is when he has all six stones, which he does accumulate in the movie, He's able to do whatever he wants. And part of Thanos' uh, philosophy, part of his conviction in the movie, um, is that he recognizes and came from a, a planet where all of his people were destroyed because of the uh, overuse of resources, overpopulation. And so in his mind, the only way to solve this, the only way to get ahead of this is to wipe out 50% of all of life. Plants, animals, people, doesn't matter. Good, bad people. And he's so convicted about this um, that he's willing to do this and put the glove on. And when he snaps his fingers, and those that have seen the movie even, he doesn't even, there's still a chance that he's part of the 50%. He's willing to take a risk of his own life to, say, to, to follow his convictions of 
of death ultimately, but in his mind, ultimate life for, for mankind and, and human, or life forms all around the planet. So I want to show you this clip. It's a little long. It's like five minutes, so just watch it. It's the very last scene of the movie. So everything is building up, and I just want you, as you watch the close of this epic movie, and you avoid shedding tears for some of you, <laughs> I know will, uh, I want you to keep in mind this, okay? Especially if you haven't watched it. Remember all the hype leading up to this. Remember the buildup of this story. And I want you to just cognize, you know, just in your own mind as it wraps up, ask the question, am I feeling happy or great about this ending? Or does it just like leave you with a giant thud? <laughs> um, so watch the clip and, and then we'll, we'll break it down uh, afterwards here. Quick, let's read the room. How are you feeling? <laughs> you ready to sing a joyous song right now, right? No, it's pretty depressing, isn't it? It leaves you, many people left the theater with tears. My daughter, when I picked her up from the movie theaters, had swollen eyes, right? Just swollen eyes. Like, I can't take it anymore. Um, this is, but this is what's interesting is this is the end of this epic movie. Um, now, why do I show this? Why are we talking about this? Because of this. In this epic movie, in this epic buildup with all of these good guys and all of these superheroes and all of these superpowers, the Avengers still failed. The Avengers at the end of this couldn't do it. They came up short. They failed. They didn't win. We didn't walk off with that joyous, you know, triumphant yes. We walked off with this, what are we going to do for a year? What's going to happen? <laughs> right? <laughs> Have you ever failed before? Have you ever fallen short with something in your life? As a believer, as a Christ follower, have you ever fallen short, not met the mark? What do you do in those moments? How do we handle those? And even more so, how do we avoid those? Let's press in a little bit more. Have you ever failed at something and it been your fault? <laughs> or is your shortcomings? It was, for whatever reason, lack of resources, lack of money, lack of pedigree, background, know-how, timing. You just fall short. I want to speak into that. I think it was this week almost. It's been five years since me and my wife moved back to Denver, Colorado with the intention and the heart and the calling to plant a church in downtown Denver. And yet here I am today standing, teaching you at Jubilee Fellowship. We started out great. We started out, we knew God was calling us to start a church in downtown. We met in a bar down there to start things out. 250 people the first week. That's a great first Sunday for a first-time church. And then we had to move locations. And then eventually we had to close the doors down. And, and I have to wrestle with, just like you do in these kind of moments, big or small, with what do I do from here? How are we supposed to deal? I thought the Christian life was victorious, right? I thought it was all about us conquering, and, and yet here I am in the mud and the mire, big or small. I mean, you've all, we've all been there before. 
How do we do this? How do we avoid these? How do we pick ourselves up and, and move forward? Or what's the mentality we're supposed to have? Should we just wallow in this? When we fall down, when we fail, when we, when we come up short, are we supposed to just walk away or are we supposed to press in? Well, there's three reasons that I think we fail sometimes or that we fall short as believers. The first thing is this. We don't believe that we're picked. We don't believe we're called. We don't believe we're chosen. You hear me? We go, that's for someone else. That's for the Billy Grahams of the world. Can I tell you something real quick? The church wasn't built on guys like Billy Graham. They had a part in it. The church wasn't even built on the 12 original disciples, and they played a major part in it. Do you know what the church was majorly built on? The carpenters, the cobblestone makers, the, the window you know, assembly, what do you call them? <laughs> window makers, there you go. The average Joe, the person that, that works you know, the, the nine to five job and then comes home, says, I follow Christ. This is what the church was built on. But a lot of our mentality today, when it comes to failure, when it comes to situations or challenges or, or, or problems in our life, is we go, I'm not that guy. God didn't pick me. The other reason is we think sometimes time, the timing is off. Or we're trying to rush it, right? Or we wait too long. Timing is, is part of it. And the other part is this, is that failure cripples us sometimes. Sometimes we experience some failure in our life, and it, it leaves a scar, doesn't it? And sometimes you look back at that scar coming up on another situation, you go, I, I don't want to try that again, right? And we back off, we, we move backwards on it. I want to share with you and talk with you about three guys that we read about in the Bible, David, Moses, and a guy by the name of Peter. And these guys all had different trials and tribulations in their life, but I think they speak into the context of this, of us falling short sometimes. And what do we do? How do we, how do we find identity? How do we you know, deal with failures? You know? What do we do with this time issue? And so if you've got your Bibles, I want to turn to 1 Samuel 16. It's found in chapter 6. We're going to look at the first part of a life of a guy by the name of David. Now, all of us, if you've read any part of the Bible, you probably know David pretty well. He's one of the greatest kings you know, of, of uh, the Israelite people, the Jewish people that ever lived. Was he perfect? <laughs> Absolutely not, right? Um, you know, he committed adultery. He had someone murdered. Uh, he lied. But the great thing about David is he's always been faithful to God. But how does he start out? Because he, he's not of a king pedigree. He's, he doesn't come up in the lineage uh, of kings, but he was picked. But I want to look at this story because I think it, it, it speaks into our context. And we're going to start with verse six. It says, when they came, when they, they is being uh, Samuel, who's a prophet and a guy by the name of Jesse. Jesse was just a dad. Okay. He had eight kids. Um, and God said, listen, I, I'm not going to, I'm done with the current king. He's not, he's fallen short. He, he's just not going to be the king that I want to be. So I'm picking a new one, but I'm going to pick him and just let you know, Samuel, as a prophet, who this, this, this future king is to be. And so he tells him to go to this guy named Jesse's house. And he says, I'm going to pick one of these sons. And this is how the story plays out. When they came, he looked on Eliab, who was the oldest, and he thought, surely 
the Lord's anointing is before him. Now, this is interesting because you have the prophet of God, the one who's probably the closest in relationship to God, at least by proximity, right? If anyone knows the heart or is closer to the heart of God, it's probably Samuel, the prophet. And yet here he is looking at this son and going, oh, yeah, this is the guy. Look at all the features. He was made to be king. Everything on the exterior, his stature, his righteousness, how he looks, just screams future king. It says this, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. So then Jesse made Shammai pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is just keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not even sit down till he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes. How'd you like to have that, that superpower, right? At least he's got beautiful eyes. And he was handsome. It says this, and the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now just put yourself in this situation. Put yourself in, in David's situation, Okay. I mean, here comes dad strolling out one, two, three, son number four, number five, number six, and number seven. He doesn't even go get David. David's not even in the qualification of being picked. Oh, there's, whether he forgot or it was intentional, I don't know. But talk about daddy issues, right? <laughs> I mean, come on. You're out doing sheep, and, and, and son number one, he gets passed by. He's not good enough. Two, three, four. How does an eight feel? I've been an eight before. Have you been an eight before? Have you ever been looked over, passed by? Have your gifts, your talents been looked at and been like, I don't, I don't think they matter? Or it's not the right timing? Have you ever said to yourself, who am I? I I'm not qualified for even this. Then you're an eight. I'm an eight. David definitely was an eight. I mean, here he is, son number one, no good, son number two, and then he brings out number eight. And that's when God says, I pick you. I pick you, number eight. I don't want, I mean, imagine the, the psyche of David walking into this, just struggling, you know, like my dad doesn't even think I'm worthy to even stand in line here. I just take care of sheep all day. Who am I? God says, move over, move over. You're the one. You've got what I need for right now. And I think the first thing that we can learn from David when it comes to failure and how we deal with it or how not to fail is you gotta realize you're chosen. You've been picked. Do you understand that? You have been picked. I, I look at my life. 
Listen, you know, I'm up here preaching, but I didn't grow up with a lineage, a heritage of preachers. Billy Graham was not my dad, okay? I had, my dad was, he ran a print shop, right? Uh, he struggled with alcoholism until God really got a hold of him. And then when I was 11 years old, my dad died in a car accident. We didn't have money. I was a latchkey kid growing up. Mom worked when I got home from school. There is nothing on paper that says this guy should be up here teaching the Bible. And yet God said, I love eights. <laughs> I love eights. You may not look it, but I'm looking at something else. Here's a question for you. If God looks at the heart, how good are we at the working and developing our heart? And <laughs> in comparison, how much time do we spend on our outer appearance? And preparing for something that God doesn't even really care about. But God looks at that, those, those times, that integrity, those moments alone. He's seen you. And he says, I don't care if you're an eight. You're picked and you're chosen. And I want you. I'm calling you off the bench. And I want you. You're not JV. You're varsity. And you always have been. You're chosen. And you have to realize that. In a world that wants to shout all the eight statistics at you, you need to say, no, 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 no. The one that really cares about me is the one that says, I love my eights. <laughs> We're a church of eights. Come on. Four people. There we go. All right. <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr., January 27th, 1956. Before Dr. King becomes the great Dr. King that we all read, before the I have a dream speech, on January 27th, 1956, in his living room, sorry, in his kitchen, he gets a phone call late at night, and the phone call says this. If you don't get your family out in two days, they're all going to die. Rosa Parks had just sat on the bus, and Martin Luther had just begun doing some uh, nonviolent protests. But he hadn't really done anything here, and here he gets one of the worst phone calls you could ever get. And his immediate mind went to fear, went to preservation. How do I keep my family safe? And in that moment, all alone, in that kitchen, something incredible happened. God spoke to his heart. And this is what he said to him. He said, Martin, stand up for justice. You stand up for righteousness. Stand up for truth. And lo, listen to this, I will be with you even until the end of the age. And he said, the voice just kept repeating over and over, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Because church, it's not who you are, but it's whose you are. Oh, amen. And in that moment, in that kitchen, all alone, he decided, I'm going to be the guy that God picked me to be, that God called me to be. And from that day on, he changed his mindset. Two days later, his house was bombed. Kids were inside. They survived, and the whole black community went to riot. Martin Luther stood on the ashes of his front porch, and he gave this incredible speech saying, it's not about violence, and the only way we're going to beat this is with love. How can he say this? Because he knows he's chosen. He knows he was picked. He's an eight, yes, but in that place and in that time, he knows whose he was and not just who he was. Does that make sense? You have to know who you are. If you're going to face failure, if you're going to come up with shortcomings, you have to know that you've been picked 
And even though you're an eight, God thinks you're so much more than that. And he wants to use you. This is why Psalms 23, like we read this in, in funerals all the time, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel in evil. This is why when you read that, you should read this with a new confidence. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the worst part of death, and death is eyeing me from every corner, and they're watching, looking to attack, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Because the person holding my hand is much stronger than the ones looking at me. You've got to understand this. Listen to this. I love this. James chapter 5. You don't have this in your notes, but... I wanted to give this to you. This, this blew my mind when I read this. James chapter 5, verse 17. Listen to what it says. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Verse 18. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So here you have this description of this incredible... How many would you say Elijah's an incredible man of faith, right? Like you'd say, this... This guy would be on a poster, <laughs> like you know, if we lived in Jesus' day. Like this is a, the great Elijah, right? He prayed for rain. He called down fire from heaven one time. He he prayed for rain to come, for it to stop, and and God did it on his behalf. But I want you to notice the first part of this verse. It says this: Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah, the great Elijah, had the same nature. As me and you, just process that for a second. And this isn't the only scripture that, that relates to this kind of verbiage. There was no special wiring that Elijah had. He had a nature just like me and you. And he fought the same kind of fears and the same type of struggles. But he had a God that he latched himself to because God said, I pick you. Who do you choose? The other person I'm going to look at is a guy by the name of Moses. Moses can teach us about timing. Moses teaches us that timing is everything. <sighs> Moses lived to be 120 years old, okay? The first 40 years of his life, he lived in Egypt under the influence of Egyptian rule. The next 40 years of his life, he spent where? Did anyone remember? <clears throat> in the desert, Right? He was shepherding and, and learning everything about the wilderness. And then the last 40 years of his life, he spent doing what? Leading the people of God out of slavery and into freedom. Now, if you look at Moses' first 40 years and you pulled him aside and say, Moses, is it time for your people to be free? Like, is this the timing now? I could guarantee you Moses would be like, yes. Do you see the oppression of my people? Like, look what God has done in this situation. He put me, a Jewish person, in the middle of an Egyptian wealthy family, in, in, in the Pharaoh's family. Like, I've got the education and the pedigree and the strength and the might of, of, of all the Egyptians. I can lead these people out. And in that mindset, what does he do? He sees an Egyptian attacking one of his people, and what, what happens? He kills him. He's like, okay, this is the answer. Like, we're going to come with might. We're going to come with, with, you know, a mighty army. We're going to rise up. The revolt will happen. Does that happen? No, it doesn't. It doesn't happen the way Moses thinks it's going to happen. Why? Because Moses still has to spend 40 years in a desert. Why does he need to spend another 40 years in the desert? Because there's something in the desert that he's got to learn. 
before he can lead the people to freedom. Church, timing is everything. And you may be in a place right now where the vision seems on hold, where the calling seems like it's on pause. And maybe it seems like it's been 20 years, 40 years. Don't give up. My son, uh, he got in trouble a little while ago at school. For, he, he's, he's, the, he's the one kid that just says what's on his mind. No filter whatsoever, no emotion. Just could be like, wow, okay, well, that hurt. You know? so, so he does this at school. I can't remember the situation. He does this. And so he comes home from school. We have a talk about this. We're like, man, you've got you've to learn patience, son. You've got to learn this. So I show him the clip from Braveheart. <laughs> Any Braveheart fans? I show him the clip where the, the English are pressing in. You remember this? And William Wallace has his gang of nobodies, right? That's holding the speared sticks. And they're holding them on the ground. And they're waiting for the English and all the horses to press in to where they can lift them up and then have a major kind of win in that place. But the whole scene, it's like 45 seconds of William Wallace just yelling out, hold, 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 because you can see, especially in the youth, the, the, the younger of the warriors, they want to pull it up. They want to reveal it. They want to jump into it. They, they want it now, right? But they had to learn to be a little patient in this moment. Because if you're patient enough and the timing is right and the calling is there and the, and, and, and the, 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 you, the idea of you being chosen all aligns up, man, great things happen. If you hold, and some of you are just in that place, you just need to hold right now. You need to learn. Eugene Peterson, um, he's got a book. I love it. Love, 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 love it. It's called the, Lo- the Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He actually stole it from Nietzsche, who's a famous uh, atheist. But, but he, he, he says this, that being a Christ follower is learning the art of the long obedience in the same direction. It's not giving up. It's not saying, you know, even though I fall, even though I fail sometimes, I'm going to be patient because the timing, how many of you know, even when pregnancy, right? You can have all the right parts in place, but if it's not the right timing, there's no fruit. And in your situation, you may be going, God, what is happening? I just don't get this. And maybe it feeds into that idea that you're innate. You need to know this. Be patient. It's about the long obedience, obedience over time. That's one of God's formulas that he uses all the time. Timing is everything. And the third thing is this, that we can learn. is from a guy by the name of Peter. And, and Peter teaches us this, that failure is the best teacher, isn't it? I hate that so much. <laughs> Failure is the best teacher. To understand this about Peter, you got you to understand how Peter grew up uh, to understand his mindset when he became a disciple. Uh, the question in those days, uh, if you were a good Jewish young boy, was how do you educate you know, a, a disciple? How do you educate the, the young men in, in our community? Um, Josephus, a, a Jewish historian, he, he wrote this. Um, above all, we pride ourselves on the education of our children. Uh, the Talmud, which is an expansion of uh, the rabbis' uh, writings, they said this, the world subsists through the breath of school children. It goes on and it says, under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil at all. From six upwards, accept them and stuff them with Torah like an ox. <laughs> 
They said, listen, up until six, let them be kids. But when they're six, man, we're going to get the scriptures into them. And so what would happen is they begin an education process. Every kid, every boy, especially from the age of six, would enter uh, what they called Bet Safer. Everyone said Bet Safer. Bet Safer was house of, uh, let me see, house of the book. So it was all about studying the scripture, the Torah. And from day one, they would put honey on the young boy's uh, pinkies, and they would say, taste this. And they'd taste it and say, what does it taste like? And it's sweet on my mouth. And they say, that's like the word of God every day of your life. Remember that. Don't ever forget that, that uh, taste in your mouth. And they would begin from day one to start memorizing the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So by age 10, by age 10, church, they had memorized all of the first five books of the Bible. Now, once you got to age 10, if you were the best of the best, then you moved on to the second class of education, but it was only the best of the best that moved on. It was called Bet Talmud. Everyone say Bet Talmud. It's the house of learning, it's translated as. This is for kids between the ages of 10 and 14. And from this age, you start learning the rest of the Old Testament. You start memorizing all the prophets. You start memorizing the book of Psalms. All of this is embedded into who you are as a person. Jesus, in Luke chapter 2, if you remember, in verses 41 through 49... He uh, gets lost from his parents. Do you remember? <clears throat> He's age 12. And they're looking all over for him. And where do they end up finding him? In the temple where the teachers are teaching. In this uh, uh, level of, of, of education, they begin learning the art of questioning an answer with a question. And it was all about giving uh, ownership to that young student. Now, once, uh, once the disciple at that point, once the young man showed that they were qualified to go even further, mo- the best of the best of the best would move on to the final stage called Bet Midrash. Everyone say Bet Midrash. <laughs> Bet Midrash was called the house of studies. It was from ages 14 and on. And in this stage, what uh, a young man would do is they would go find a reputable rabbi a teacher whom they respected, whom they knew, understood, and could teach Torah. In fact, a, a rabbi would, uh, they would call it weightier matters. It would be an expansion or interpretation, if you will, of, of the 613 laws that the Jews uh, had in the Torah. And they would give their own interpretation of it. So when a young disciple would come up at age 14 and he would say, I want to be your Talmudin, I want to be your disciple, the, the rabbi would sit with him and ask him a series of questions. And these questions were all to get to the point, can this young man take and teach my teachings? Does he have what it takes to take my yoke and to teach it to others, to be a rabbi someday? And if he thought that he did, then he would tell the young boy this, come and follow me. And what young boy would leave everything, occupation, house, home, family, and he would go to follow the rabbi. If he didn't have what it takes, the rabbi would look at him and say, you know Torah well, go study your family trade. And most young men and women 
by the age of 14, if they were with mom and dad, they were learning the trade that they grew up with. Does this make sense? Now, once you're following the rabbi, once you're underneath him, what was the goal? It was to do everything the rabbi did. It was to, I want to say what he says when, when, when he prays. I want to react how he reacts when he gets angry. I want to be around the rabbi so much that whatever he does, I do. Why? Because someday I want to be the rabbi. I want to take his teaching and I want to spread it everywhere. I want you to check this out. Matthew chapter 4 verses 18 It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. This is Jesus. Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, what does this tell you about Peter and Andrew right off the bat? They They didn't make the cut, did they? They're working with dad doing fishing. Why are they doing that? Because they didn't have what it took to be the rabbi's Talmudin, to be their disciple. So they're out learning the trade with dad in this story. And it says this, that he, being Jesus, said to him, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What happened? What's the rabbi telling him? I pick you. I choose you. You have what it takes. Uh, Immediately they left their nets And they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. What were they doing? Learning the trade, right? They didn't have a cut either. And he called them immediately. They left the boats and their father, and they followed him. Why? When I read the story, I'm like, are they on drugs? Like, I just never understood the context of this. Like, why would you leave your occupation, right, your vocation, your your livelihood, and, lit, and your dad, and just go follow this stranger that just came up to you. Why? Because there was no greater calling than following. If the rabbi called you, man, think about it. Why do we not hear, you know, dad, you know, like, oh, man, you can't go. What am I going to do? Two sons gone. Like, come on, we gotta, I got to file chapter 11 now. Like, what's the, come on. No, 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 he's down at the pub. Like, guess who got picked today? Did you see? my son? Yeah, Peter got picked. The rabbi said, he has what it takes. Oh, your son? Yeah! It was very, uh, you were very proud to, to be picked, to be called by the rabbi. Now, check out this last story here. Matthew chapter 14, verse 25. You know this so well, but I want you to read it with new eyes. And in the fourth watch of the night, he being Jesus, he came to them, the disciples, Something a little different, though, is he's walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter, right, jumps up and answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Why is Peter asking to come out onto the water? Because guess what his rabbi did? He's walking on the water. And if I saw a rabbi walking on the water, what do I want to do? I want to walk on the water. (laughs) Right? Jesus, call me out there. Let me do this too. This is what he says. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. and And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. 
saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you what? Doubt. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Now this, I read this story so many times and I read it in the context of Peter going out on the water and then looking at Jesus, his faith in Jesus waning and beginning to sink. But Peter's faith in Jesus isn't what he was lacking. What faith did he lack? Who did he doubt in this story? Himself. Who am I? I shouldn't even be called to be a Talmudian. What am I even doing? I'm standing on water? I'm just some local boy from Bethsaida. I can't, like, there's nothing in my resume that says I should be standing on this now. But church, it's not the strength of your faith, but it's the person you have faith in that matters and that will save you. The Bible says if you have the faith of a mustard seed, that's all I need. It's not the strength that you have. It's the strength of the rabbi who's calling you, who said, I believe in you and I've picked you. Now come out of the boat and walk on water with me. And some of us, we've got this eight mentality where we walk around and something happens and we start failing and we start saying to God like Spider-Man did, I don't feel so good, God. (laughs) And we stay there. And God's saying, that's not you. I see something much bigger than you, and I'm calling you out of the boat. Now come walk on water with me. But God, you don't know who I am. I'm nobody. I, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a minister. I'm not. doesn't matter. I've called you. Imagine if this church walked out of these doors and said, I'm not going to walk with the mentality that I'm innate. I'm going to walk with the mentality that God has called me. And he's picked me. And when I worship and I sing and I talk to him, he smiles at me and he loves me. He made me. Imagine what we could do as a church if we grabbed a hold of that. All right, last story, and then I want to wrap it up. There's one last disciple that I haven't mentioned. His name is Philip. We're introduced to him in John chapter 1, verse 43. It says this, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And he said to him, what? Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew uh, and Peter. Now, Bethsaida is a small, small town, population at that time around 600 people. How many of you have been to Walden, Colorado? That's what I thought, okay? Walden has a population of almost 600 people, okay? So it would be like someone rising up in the ranks from Walden, Colorado, Right, and here's this guy, this little kid. Most of these, most of these guys were teenagers. You know that Jesus says, I, uh, "Come follow me." Well, I'm from Bethsaida. It doesn't matter. I call you. And this is what happens after Jesus dies on the cross and comes back. About 30 years later, Philip goes to a town called Heropolis. And Heropolis is ruled by an emperor by the name of Domitian. Domitian was um, he's a pretty rough guy. Uh, he was Greek Roman. And the thing he did in his city was he built what was called the Domitian Gate. I got a picture of it right here. I want to show you. Now, it wasn't the size of this gate that really was the issue. It was what it represented. Um, When you walked into the city, you had to walk underneath the Domitian Gate. And when you did this, it was saying something not just to the city, but even to yourself. 
Domitian uh, was one of the first emperors that claimed to be a deity. He was one of the first Greek Roman emperors that said, I'm a god. Um, When you walked underneath this gate, what you were saying is my protection, uh, my sustenance, my provision, um, my, my god is Domitian. And by walking underneath that gate, you're telling everyone that I'm underneath the rule and authority of king and God, Domitian. When Philip was introduced to this idea, he said something crazy. He said, I'm not going to walk underneath that gate. And he chose for him and his kids every day to walk around the gate. Punishment for walking around the gate was crucifixion. Philip was crucified with his kids for walking around this gate. And my question to you is this. What gets in to a person like Philip that makes this young kid, essentially, from a nowhere town from, you know, Bethsaida, to say, I'm not going to walk under there because I serve a greater rabbi. What kind of conviction, what kind of fire turns in your belly? The kind of fire that resides in you. Philip said, I saw my rabbi feed 5,000 people. I think I can trust him with this. Church, we don't have to live in failure. We don't have to sit and wait around for part two of the movie of your life to come about. Be active now. Step up. Shake the dust off. Know that you're called. The rabbi thinks you're special. I'm just an eight. It doesn't matter. God's been holding you. Maybe he's even been hiding you for a season for such a time as this. Your failures are not crippling. Your failures are your classroom. Learn from them, church. Peter would later go on and deny Christ and have an ultimate failure. How do you think he got up and was able to go and spread the gospel like he did? Because he knew the rabbi. He'd walked through failure before. You've walked through it before. We can be and do great things because the rabbi calls you. And he thinks you're special. Would you stand with me? With this in mind, church, with this confidence, with this assuredness, I want to ask you this question. What could you do today? What could you do if you knew that with God you could never fail with it? What could you do? And maybe that's what God's calling you to. Don't walk in fear. Don't walk in defeat. The rabbi's called you. He's called you. Father God, I thank you for what you're doing in the life of this church. God, I know what it's like to struggle in your own head with doubts, with with self-doubts, with failure, God, everyone in this room could raise their hand and say, we've walked through some form of this. 
where we've, we've been looked past, God. We've been tossed aside. Maybe we've seemed insignificant because of our whatever, our, our current situation, our age. But you're calling and you're raising up an incredible family here, God. And we can change the world if we walk in this assuredness. We can, we can change cities like Heropolis, like Philip did. And we can change the world and the city that we live in, God. Do it today. If you're here today, I just want to ask you a question. You say, man, God's speaking to me. Man, he is stirring in my heart. Would you raise your hands? I just want to pray for you. Yeah, 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 lots of hands, lots of hands. God, I pray for these individuals who've raised their hands, who've said, God, you're saying something. I pray you would lock the seed in. You'd lock this in. That you, it, like a small seed, it would begin to blossom and begin to grow in the right environment. And God, that they would see not success as we deem it, God, but success as you deem it. And for those that are out there that are tired and weary and have been through the waiting, give them that much more patience for the right timing. For you're a good God and you love your people here and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. 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 Was this good? Amen. Did it connect? Good. Good. Well, I love you guys. I'm going to be over here if you need to talk or need prayer or anything. Until then, we'll see you next week.